If you have your Bibles, turn them open to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read from verse 1. This is the word of God to us this morning, church. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come before your word and this morning we confess that so easily, so quickly we lose sight of you, Lord God. And yet we thank you for the beautiful gift of our Lord Jesus, the, the image of the invisible God who has come to us. And Lord, this morning we pray as we just study once again your word that you would open our eyes to show us more of Christ, that we might know him and love him even more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning I want to begin with a question for us. And the question is this. What does the average Australian deserve? Uh, this week in the Sydney Morning Herald, I was reading an article by Jacqueline Malley entitled, At least we can direct our COVID rage at politicians 
God knows they deserve it. Uh, she writes in the article this week uh, the following. It's sad to say it, but the masochistic ritual of the daily press conference has become one of the last remaining communal events for a lockdown society. Sure, we all watch it alone in our custom-made COVID cubicles, but at least we are all doing it at the same time. It is the closest we will come to a collective experience for a good long while. We're all in this together? Like hell we are. The population has subdivided into so many interest groups that we are practically pulverized. There are the childcare parents, the homeschooling parents, the DIY enthusiasts, and the Bunnings is Bad Brigade. There are mental health experts and epidemiologists, and even the epidemiologists are balkanized to the extent where you can choose the one that suits your politics and your level of risk aversion. Speaking of politics, thank God we have politicians at whom to direct our rage. At least they deserve it. What does the average Australian deserve? What according to Mali, we are at a minimum deserve to be able to direct a little rage at our politicians. After all, they deserve it because we deserve better, right? You know, in our culture, in our society here in Sydney, we're used to being told we deserve many, many different things. We deserve a world-class education. We deserve world-class healthcare. We deserve a fair go, a decent wage for a day's work. We deserve access to fast internet. We deserve flexible work hours and a decent number of public holidays. We deserve a foot in the property market and ideally a property with a backyard. We deserve to be able to marry the person we choose and to live free from discrimination. We deserve to be able to travel abroad and not struggle to make ends meet. And we probably deserve a little freedom from this lockdown. You know, don't get me wrong, all these things are good, but what do we actually mean when we say that we deserve them? You know, to say that someone deserves something is to speak about what is right and what is fair. It's to speak about justice. It's to speak about a person's worth, their value, their character, what they have done and what it merits. You see, our culture also believes that all people are intrinsically good and therefore deserving of a whole range of things in their lives. More, in our neighborhood, we're so prone to look over the fence and compare ourselves with others. And as we compare ourselves with others, we often find that in the comparison, we rate ourselves quite highly. And the reason is because we deeply, intuitively view ourselves as good people. In our passage today, we're going to witness Jesus perform two different miracles. Uh, these miracles demonstrate his power, but most of all, they demonstrate his grace and his kindness. You know, if you believe that God owes you a whole bunch of things in life, you'll find quite quickly you won't be a thankful person. You'll either be disinterested in God and fail to see your blessings. You'll believe that you got what you deserve. Or alternatively, if things don't go your way, you'll find yourself to be angry and resentful because you have not been given what you've been owed. You know, it's nearly impossible to approach God with the humble trust he desires if you have a high view of what God owes you. 
You know, if you take notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Gracious King. And I really have two points this morning for us. They're just the two different miracles that Jesus performs in our passage. Point number one, grace the unworthy. And then point number two, grace freely given. But as we look at these miracles, as we look at our passage, I believe our passage teaches us the life-changing truth that the Lord Jesus freely gives his grace to those who are completely unworthy of it. He freely gives grace to those who do not deserve it. That's where we're going this morning. So let's dive right into our first point in our time together. Point number one, grace to the unworthy. You know, just by way of context, the last few weeks, we've been listening to Jesus preach his famous sermon on the plain. And imagine how amazing it would have been to be amongst the crowd, listening to Jesus as he preaches this message. It's this wonderful message about the upside down kingdom of God, where the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the hated are blessed. And all the while, the rich and the well-fed and the well-liked are in danger. It's a deeply challenging message to be gracious in our judgment of others, to examine ourselves first and to return in love and kindness to those who do evil to us, just like God himself does all the time. And Jesus, having finished this incredible sermon, now recommences his ministry of traveling around the countryside and preaching. Uh, Jesus is traveling around his home district of Galilee, and he's in Capernaum, right at the side of the Sea of Galilee, about 50 kilometers away from his hometown of Nazareth. So let's pick up the story again in Luke chapter 7, verse 1. It says, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. Jesus' reputation has now traveled well beyond the bounds of Jewish, uh, the Jewish community to reach the ears of their Roman occupiers. This man is a centurion, a officer in the Roman military overseeing roughly a hundred men. These centurions were well paid by the Roman Empire and so they were often quite wealthy people of quite good means. And Galilee was part of the Tetrarchy, the the quarter area ruled by Herod Antipas, the incompetent son of Herod the Great, the former king of Israel. And it was likely that Herod uh, had employed Roman military to to help him govern his Tetrarchy, the area around Galilee. Uh, This centurion was likely part of this hired Roman force. And we're not told what the ethnicity of this uh, centurion is, except that he's a Gentile, and therefore as a Gentile, he's expected to be a pagan, uh, to worship the gods of the Greek and Roman pantheon. Uh, Romans, you see, at this time, were the conquering, the occupying force in Israel. They also, as a result, generally despised and looked down upon the Jews whom they viewed as a subjugated people. They had occupied them and conquered them. More, this centurion's employer, Herod, 
it was really clear that he opposed Jesus because he had opposed John the Baptist. And in Mark chapter 6, we learn that he believed that Jesus was, in fact, John the Baptist raised from the dead. This was no fan of his. And so this centurion, as someone hired by Herod, likely, was not someone you'd expect Jesus to want to have much to do with. This centurion has a servant, literally, actually, in the passage, a slave. And this slave's life is hanging by a thread. He is at the point of death. He is just about to die. In Matthew's gospel, we learn that this slave was, in fact, paralyzed and suffering terribly. Uh, this centurion, though, absolutely cherishes this man. He loves him deeply and undoubtedly as the time had passed and as his slave had become sicker and sicker and sicker, he'd been searching for someone who could help. He'd probably asked numerous physicians to no avail and had heard about Jesus and his miraculous healings. And therefore, knowing that Jesus as a Jewish rabbi would probably be unwilling to come to him, he sends a delegate or a delegation of local Jewish officials to try and convince him to come to him. And these leaders, they plead and they plead with Jesus, saying, this man is worthy. This man is deserving of your time. He loves our nation. You see, somehow during his placement in Judea, this military man had fallen in love with the nation of Israel and its people. He'd even financed the building of a synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, it was probably uh, probable that, in in fact, he was what we'd call a God-fearer, someone who was not yet a convert, but who deeply respected the God of the Bible and his people. And these leaders are saying to Jesus, if anyone is worthy of your time, if anyone is worth taking the time with, it's this man right here. You know, from a superficial perspective, you would have to agree with these Jewish leaders, wouldn't you? I mean, this centurion is an outstanding citizen. He is wealthy. He is generous. He is kind-hearted. He deeply cares for his slaves. He is esteemed in the community. He is graciously funding the, the building of even a synagogue or a church. If anyone deserves Jesus' attention, surely it is this man. And this is so similar in many ways, to the way in which many of us, particularly in this neighborhood, can assess ourselves and our neighbors, isn't it? You know, we look in the mirror or over the fence, and we see people who are comparatively wealthy, generous, kind-hearted, esteemed in the community. And based on our assessment, we can quietly think to ourselves, well, of course, Jesus will be gracious to us. Of course, Jesus will be gracious to them. But this is the enthusiastic assessment of these local leaders. And it's not how this centurion views himself. Let's read on in our passage uh, from verse 6. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. 
and to my servant, do this. And he does it. See, Jesus is almost at the centurion's home when a group of the centurion's friends stop him with another message from the centurion. And the message is, Jesus, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I I didn't presume to come to you. I didn't presume I would be worthy of a hearing in your presence, he says. You see, this centurion is not only a man of outstanding character, but one with profound humility. You know, some commentators suggest that this centurion is merely sensitive to Jewish purity laws that would have stopped Jesus from visiting his home. But firstly, I mean, that didn't trouble Jesus when it came to tax collectors and sinners. He was perfectly happy to break purity laws to do that. But more, the centurion would still have been able to come to see Jesus himself without breaking purity laws. And yet in verse 7, he says, literally, I myself am not worthy to come to you. The centurion is saying, Jesus, you are so far superior to me that I do not deserve to even be in your presence. Now, remember for a moment, this is a successful man, a man of outstanding character, a military commander of a nation that has subjugated Jesus's people and largely despises them. There was every reason that he might look down upon Jesus and disdain him as well. But no, he doesn't. Just like John the Baptist, this centurion had seen something in Jesus that made him realize, you are far beyond me. I don't even deserve to trouble you with my presence. Here's a question for us this morning, church. Is that how we view Jesus? You know, in our individualistic, me-centered culture, we are tempted to view God as our peer. We take phrases like Jesus, friend of sinners, to take Jesus as a friend, as a mate, but more than that, as kind of like a colleague, as an equal. But even more than this, this centurion explains that he understands chain of command. You know, above him would have been the tribune or the narrowband tribune and above the tribune would have been a prefect and all the way above him to finally above this centurion would have been Caesar himself. And this centurion is saying if he gives a command to a servant or a a soldier to do something, they obey because he carries the authority of those above him ultimately to Caesar himself. You see, the centurion has seen enough of Jesus to know that he carries the very authority of God himself. And therefore, he knows that all he needs is to give his word and the slave will be healed. He's saying, I know I don't need you to even be there to see him or to touch him or to perform some special ritual. Just say your word and it will be done. It's this incredible combination of humility on the one hand in seeing his place rightly and faith in the power and authority of Jesus as well. And so we read on in verse 9 of our passage. It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. 
And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus is absolutely stunned by the example of the centurion. You know, the word translated there is marveled. It means to be extraordinarily impressed, to move to wonder, to, to be amazed. And Jesus, the divine God-man, is, is so deeply affected by this man's example. So much so that he turns toward the crowd that is with him to make sure that they do not miss what has just taken place. You know, we would be wise to, to linger a little bit longer on this example as well. You know, if Jesus was so moved by this centurion's example and his faith that he would pause to ensure this crowd would not miss it, we would be wise to linger a little longer upon his example as well to make sure we do not miss it either. The question I want us to think about this morning is, what was so wonderful about this centurion's faith? You know, the answer is, it wasn't just that he believed in the power and grace of Jesus to heal by his word alone, but that he saw the reality that he did not deserve it as well. You know, the Bible teaches that God spoke in the very beginning and made the world and everything in it, including people. The Bible teaches that he made humanity for the purpose of knowing him and for the purpose of loving him. And because he made us, he does not owe anything to us, but we owe him our everything. You see, our forefathers rejected relationship with him, choosing instead self-determination. And rejecting God, they chose death and pain because he is the source of life and goodness. But it's not like God has created some sort of police state, you know, where we owe God an expensive fine, uh, not like breaking lockdown rules and, and, and being fined $5,000 for holding a COVID non-safe party. No, it's not like that. Since God desires to be in a loving relationship with us, he views this rejection as adultery and betrayal. In the prophet Hosea, uh, God tells this prophet in the book of Hosea to go and marry a sleazy woman in order to picture what he is like as the God of his people who have betrayed him. And that is that he is like a hurting husband. Now, Hosea chapter 3 verse 1 it says, and the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. You know, we've chosen to love a million different things more than God. And we don't simply face death from being cut off from him. No, God has been deeply betrayed by us and hurt by us. And so he sent his only son to live on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place. And he offers this gift of grace freely to all who come to him with trust. You know, if we compare ourselves to those around us, we may begin to believe 
that we're not that bad. But that is simply because those that are around us are the same as us. We've all spurned God. We all deserve to be cut off from him and to die. And God has treated us in a way that we did not deserve by visiting us with mercy and with grace. You know, this centurion could not have known who Jesus was as the God-man Messiah. But he did know that he was powerful and unworthy of his grace. And that caused the Savior to be moved to wonder. You know, we have such a beautiful opportunity this morning to learn from the example of the centurion who saw himself as unworthy of the grace of the Lord Jesus. You know, in this way, he had a right perspective of God and of himself. Though he had no idea of the lengths that Christ would go in order to pour out the fullness of his grace upon him. Grace that was only symbolized in this healing. He came to him humbly. And he came to him with faith. You know, the truth is that for anyone who has been walking with Jesus for a while, we know this. We know that we're undeserving recipients of the grace of Christ. But here's the question I really want us to think about this morning. Although we know this, do we feel it? You know, the truth is that it can feel like our culture and this lockdown are somehow working in tandem to create a sense that we're being ripped off. That we deserve better than what we're receiving right now. That we deserve more access to vaccines or freedoms or better governance or more certainty or respectful children or a different spouse or longer holidays or to be in a relationship or better health or a better job or any combination of all of the above. But the truth is, as our founder CJ Mahaney would often say, that because of the grace of our Lord Jesus, every day, even on our worst day, We receive better than we deserve. And that's what the centurion saw. That despite the worldly assessment of others, he saw he was unworthy. That he was undeserving. An undeserving recipient of the Lord's grace. But it gets even better. It's not just that he gives grace to the unworthy but that he freely gives it. Read with me as we move into our second point, grace freely given. Uh, We're going to look at the next miracle. You see, there can be this idea of God that he shows people grace, yes, but that he's kind of reluctant to do it. He kind of needs to twist his arm. He reluctantly pours out his grace. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. You know, having healed this centurion slave, Jesus makes the 50 kilometer journey to Nain about 20 kilometers outside of Nazareth in Galilee, where we carry uh, on with our story in verse 11. It says this. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. 
As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now Jesus now has a loud crowd, a large crowd, including his disciples, following him around. And as he arrives in this small town, there is a funeral procession for a young man who's died. It's likely this man had recently died because, of course, in the first century there's no refrigeration. And so people needed to be buried straight away. And this is procession of mourners. And as was the custom at the time, the immediate family would lead the procession. Uh, this man was being carried on a plinth and his body was likely wrapped. And it's an incredible tragedy because this young man is the only son of a woman who is already a widow. It would have been obvious to Jesus that this was the case as she would have been standing in the front of the procession mourning and all alone. No other sons to provide for her. Her husband having already died, this woman was now all alone in the world. And the tragedy is so clearly recognized by the entire town that a large number of people are present mourning with her, feeling the loss of what has taken place. And so we read on in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now Jesus sees this tragedy unfolding before his eyes and he is deeply moved, it says in our passage. And that word is used 12 times in the Bible and it's always with reference to Jesus or by Jesus himself. You see, the gods, the heroes, the champions of the Greco-Roman world, they didn't care about the plight of the needy. But Jesus is different. He deeply cares. And he says what would usually be the most outrageous thing that you could say to a widow at the funeral of her only son. He says, stop crying. And we read on in verse 14. Then he came up and touched the beard that the bear and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countryside. You know, Jesus just walks over to this funeral procession and touches the plinth on which this dead man was lying. Which, by the way, is an action that makes him ceremonially unclean in Jewish law. And immediately those carrying the dead body stop right where they are. It's almost as if they know that something is about to happen. And there's no fuss or ceremony here. Jesus simply speaks and says, young man, I say to you, get up. And he sits up and he starts talking. It's an amazing miracle and people are in awe and they start praising God. 
But it's interesting what Jesus or what Luke reports then in verse 15. He writes, and he gave him to his mother. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it, right? It's it's her son that has died and now is alive, but it's also a young man. It's not like Jesus needs to carry the guy. Why does he then say, and he gave him to his mother? Well, in one sense, Luke is pointing you to an earlier story in the Old Testament of First Kings uh, chapter 17, where Elijah had healed the Gentile widow of Zarephath's son. And after a repeated ceremony of lying on her son and blowing on him several times, the writer of First Kings used the exact same phrase, and he gave him to his mother. You know, Luke wants you to see that Jesus is like Elijah, but greater. Jesus only needs to speak. And people recognize the similarities between these two events. And they say, a great prophet has risen in our midst. But there's even greater significance to this passage. Because it pictures the incredible mercy and compassion of God to us. In raising us from spiritual death to newness of life. Think about this with me for a moment. What did the widow of Nain do to have Jesus extend his mercy towards her? Did she pray to him? Did she conduct herself in an amazingly good manner? Did she even ask him... To intervene. No, she did not. She did nothing at all. She did not earn it. She did not deserve it. She did not even ask for it. There's nothing to suggest that she even has any idea who Jesus is. More appropriately... What did her son do to deserve the mercy and kindness of our Lord? He was completely dead. He was completely unable to request anything from Jesus or to respond to his presence at all. You know, Martin Luther, on commenting on this passage, says the following. He says, the general rule that applies to all the merciful deeds of God is that they all overtake us without our merits, even before we seek them. Thus you have here an example, not of faith, but of the pure grace and loving kindness of God. Isn't that true? Our, the merciful deeds of God overtake us without our merits. An example of the pure grace and loving kindness of God. His kindness that overtakes us even before we seek him. I just want you to imagine for a moment this morning, church, that you were the young man who has died with your eyes closed and darkness descending. The moment you first awake, what do you see? You see the face of a man you do not recognize or know in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus is picturing for us the reality that through his death and resurrection, 
He gives us spiritual new life by the overflow of his mercy and grace. Just like Ezekiel's valley of dead bones where he speaks and the dead are raised. You know, John Calvin on this passage says the following. He says, we have here a striking emblem of his freely bestowed compassion in raising us from death to life. By touching the coffin, he intended perhaps to show us that he would by no means shrink from death and the grave in order to obtain life for us. He not only deigns to touch us with his hand in order to quicken us when we are dead, but in order that he might raise us to heaven himself, he descends into the grave. You know, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ listening this morning, I want you to stop and remember the moment you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you can't remember a specific moment, then I just want you to stop and remember an important part of your story, an important me- uh, memory or moment in your story of coming to know, love uh, the Lord Jesus even more. That moment that you're remembering was only after the Lord Jesus touched the plinth on which you were lying dead and said, my child, get up. You opened your eyes and you saw a face that you did not recognize and you put your trust in him. You know, every follower of Jesus Christ is a recipient of the undeserved freely given compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like the grieving widow and her dead son drew the compassion of the Lord Jesus, he too has seen us in our plight and poured out his compassion upon us. It is an example time and time again with every story of grace that is freely given. You know, I just want to close our time together this morning with just a word of application as we just stop and consider the really important question of how ought we respond to this passage this morning as a church. You know, as I was thinking about it and praying about it uh, just this week about what, what would be a right response, a verse that came into my mind, and I believe it's from the Lord for us, comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. And it says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I think that's so true. Always rejoicing, praying without stopping, and giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ Jesus for us. You know, I think there are two great temptations that we face in the midst of this lockdown. I think the first temptation is to begin to think dark thoughts about God. It's to begin to question his heart for us, to begin to question his wisdom and his sovereignty and his power, and to begin to think perhaps that he's punishing us, or perhaps even more so, that he's indifferent to us, that he simply does not care. I think the second temptation is not just to think dark thoughts towards God, it's to give in to grumbling and to complaining. To begin to have a rights mentality, to feel that we are not receiving what we deserve, and to begin to point the fingers at others 
and to stew in anger and in frustration. Well, friends, if either of those things apply to you, I believe the right way to apply the grace that we see in the Lord Jesus this morning is to repent of these things and to confess them before God and to ask him to change us in our heart in this. Friends, we need to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on him and remember the undeserved kindness and goodness that he pours out upon us day after day after day. And we need to walk in God's will for us in all circumstances, which is to remember his goodness and so to be thankful. You know, here's a small step that maybe you want to take that has helped me over many years to grow in this area. It's just to start a thankfulness diary and to take note of the many small ways, small and large ways that God has blessed us and blesses us every day. When was the last time you thanked God for being in good health? When was the last time you thanked God for having nice clothing to wear, for not being anxious about having enough in your bank account to pay for a bill? To thank God for a tasty meal you enjoyed and the fact that we do not need to go hungry. Or most of all, to remember his grace upon grace poured out upon us as we grow more and more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we close, I want to end with a story of something that I witnessed recently that really encouraged me in this. And I hope it motivates you. Dave... Our lead pastor and I were recently on a a Zoom call with another pastor in our family of churches. And this pastor was sharing his heart uh, for his church, which is going through a really tough time with COVID. And they currently have six members of their congregation critically ill and in hospital. And this pastor was uh, confessing to us that they were looking to try and raise money to pay for the hospital bills of these six critically ill members of their church. Uh, And they were struggling to raise the money and planning on uh, dipping into their building fund in order to finance each of the uh, the, the, these people that were critically ill to pay their hospital bills, an amount that in their country equates to about two and a half thousand US dollars per person. And as we had talked about it amongst ourselves, uh, we said to this pastor that on behalf of Sovereign Grace, we wanted to give them the money to, to pay for the amount that they would have been taking from their building fund so they wouldn't have to do that. And this pastor, I won't, re- won't forget how he responded to that news. He just burst into tears and he started crying. And he cried because he was so thankful for the undeserved grace of God towards him. And as I think about his tears and the joy he felt in seeing the Lord's provision, it made me think, I ought to be more like him. I ought to grow more in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to see it more clearly and to be thankful. As we remember together, church, that our Lord Jesus gives undeserved grace freely to those who trust in him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much for your beautiful example. That you would not only come and show your grace towards undeserving people like this centurion and this poor widow. 
but that you would humble yourself to die in our place, that we could know you and enjoy you forever. Oh Lord, to appreciate more the depth of the love and grace you have poured out upon us. And all this morning, we're, we're mindful as a church, as a people, that so often our heart's disposition is not one of thanksgiving, but one of grumbling and complaint. Oh Lord God, we ask as your people this morning, would you forgive us of that? And would you change our hearts in you? Would you freshly impress upon our heart the, the beautiful example and the gift of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And would that example, as we consider it more and more, Change us ever increasingly to walk in your will and to be thankful in all circumstances. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.